Sounds like you believe God is great. We're about to have a a new view of that greatness this morning, and we're going to go to Acts chapter 2, so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and take a minute and turn to there. If you didn't bring one with you today, you'll find them in the racks in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, we've uh, free Bibles in the back. You can pick one up on your way out today if you'd like to have one. Uh, We really want you to own a copy of God's Word. We've been working our way through the book of Acts, and this is only our third week into it. Um, What we've discovered so far is that in Acts chapter 1, we saw Jesus ascend, meaning return back to the Father in heaven, literally at the right hand of God. And then we were told that the disciples were instructed to wait. And while they were waiting, last week we saw that they dealt with the Judas issue. The Judas factor in their life, they had to deal with him and replace him. And so we saw that take place. This morning we move into Acts chapter 2 so that we have this understanding of the greatness and the power of God. What I'd like to do right now is just lean back into a verse that I shared with you in week 1. And it, come from, it comes from Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 18. And this is Paul speaking to a church that he was dealing with specifically. He was praying for them. And this is how he prayed. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? And you may remember that I pointed out to you that He's writing that to believers. Speaking specifically, wanting believers to understand the surpassing greatness of God's power which is in us. The Holy Spirit is already in us because we're followers of Jesus Christ. If you name the name of Christ this morning, you're a believer. The Holy Spirit is in you. So why is He asking believers to know a power that surpasses? The truth is, many believers are really, really good with knowing their relationship with Christ and their eternity is secure. But they've never experienced this kind of power that Paul is writing about here. And that's what we're going to explore in Acts chapter 2. This, this indwelling megas power. What we're looking at is the release of God's power in your life. So this word power is going to be repeated quite a bit this morning. So I just want to remind you of the Greek word as we use it. It's in your notes this morning. If you haven't found those yet, they're in your bulletin. But you'll see this word dunamis on the screen. And it's talking about an explosive type of power. It's miraculous power. It's an ability or strength that comes from God through you. So here's my premise as we come into Acts chapter 2. The power that Jesus promised, the power that He told them to wait for, is given in connection with a specific reason. A reason that God alone wanted to accomplish in their life. So you and I this morning need to understand what that purpose is. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me right now. We're going to seek God and ask Him to help us to understand how this power can be real in our life. Would you join me in that? Father, we come before You right now recognizing that Your Holy Spirit is within us. Those of us who name the name of Christ recognize that we've already been brought together in unity praising Your name in song. We hold Your Word literally in our laps right now. And we would ask that You would combine the presence of the Holy Spirit in this auditorium and in our own life and Your Word that is before us and that You would use it to open up the eyes of our heart. That we would be enlightened that we would see and discover and know You in a fresh new way. That we would experience You. That we would encounter You. And Father, this can only happen because of Your purpose and Your will and Your desire. So we ask that Your Spirit would be our teacher. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So, 
when the Spirit comes, you're going to see the Spirit comes in power and He comes suddenly in His own timing and for a very specific reason. If you're intrigued with biblical history, this is going to be speaking your love language this morning. You're going to really enjoy this going into Acts chapter 1. So here's my observation of this first verse. The suspense has to be killing the disciples. Ten days have gone by. Jesus has ascended to the Father. They've been waiting. A national festival is literally at their doorstep. The air is ripe with anticipation. And verse 1 of chapter 2 says this, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. One place meaning what we examined last week with the upper room. The place where they were commonly meeting together. The place where the Last Supper took place. They're all gathered together. So this encompasses, I believe, the whole group of 120. Not just the 12 disciples, but I think everybody who follows Jesus at this point is there in that room as we saw last week. It's very significant that Luke emphasizes the word Pentecost. Many people are confused by what that is and why does he mention that. What's so important about Pentecost? Well, in the Jewish calendar, there were three great feasts. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Each one of those three rose to the level of excitement in the nation, even the surrounding nations. Individuals would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. So if you can put it in our terms today, think Super Bowl Sunday, seventh game of the National League playoffs of baseball, seventh game of the NBA season, all combined into one, if you want to use a sporting analogy, all into one period of time where they have these three major events in their nation where everyone gets together to celebrate. So many nations from around the world would gather in Jerusalem. That's why I say the air is ripe with anticipation. Now this word Pentecost is actually a Greek word. You won't find the word Pentecost in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it goes by another name. Penta is 50. Pentecost means the festival of 50. It's a Greek term. But Pentecost was known in the Old Testament by the term the Feast of the Harvest, the one by which God commanded people to come into Jerusalem and celebrate that He had brought another bountiful harvest for them. Each of the great feasts were intended for God to show how He was active in their life. Specifically, it's an outline of Jesus' life. For instance, the Feast of Passover was to show that the lamb that was sacrificed at Passover was actually a picture of Jesus as the Lamb of God. Each of the feasts had that purpose. Now, Passover always, or Pentecost always took place on the first Sunday following 50 days after Passover. So that's why the word 50 plays in in the word Pentecost. So here's where it comes from. Leviticus 23, the old verse from the Old Testament. It says this in verse 16, You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You go to Leviticus 23, and it explains it in great detail what they were supposed to do. So this feast always took place on what they called the first day of the week, Sunday. So we find them together on Sunday morning. This tells us something very specific. In this first verse, the arrival of what you're about to see of the Holy Spirit was planned by God. It was not induced through prayer by man getting together. They were praying. They were doing what Jesus had instructed them to do. But the arrival of the teacher, 
The arrival of the comforter, the helper, was actually part of God's timetable. It was within His plan here. That's what Luke is pointing to. So let's go back into the upper room into verse 2. It says this, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So when the Spirit comes, He comes in power. We've just seen this. And He comes suddenly. The word suddenly is aphno. It's in your notes, I believe, this morning, but it literally means by surprise. They didn't know that it was coming in that moment. It really emphasizes this element of surprise, telling us this. You cannot make the Holy Spirit come. He comes in His own timing, on His own schedule. So even though they know the Spirit's coming, they're still caught off guard. The same principle is true for us today. We know that Jesus is coming one day. But we're going to be caught by surprise. Scripture says He's going to come like a thief in the night. It'll catch people by surprise even though they know He's coming. So we're told He comes from heaven, literally this this wind. So why does He say that from heaven? This violent rushing wind from heaven? Because He wants them to understand. He wants us to understand. This is supernatural. This is not a weather phenomenon. This is something that came from God Himself. So He says in verse 2, it's like a violent rushing wind. Notice that he uses the word like. And you find that in the book of Revelation. John uses it constantly. It's like this because he's struggling for words. Well, you find Luke doing the same thing. It's like a violent rushing wind. What amazes me when I see these things is the activity of God is so utterly beyond human grasp. We fail with our words, in our English language especially, to be able to capture it. So the biblical writers are forced to use what we would call similes. It's like this, but I don't know how else to describe it for you. So as I scour over commentaries, and I I do that a lot as I'm studying for things like this, commentaries are made up of theologians' writings from the last couple hundred years, and I have volumes of those things. As I scour over these commentaries, I'm absolutely intrigued with the remarkable inability that we have as humans to capture the greatness of our God, to be able to articulate it. Why in this case does he have to say, it's like this? Because there's nothing sensory about the Holy Spirit. How do you describe what you can't see? So we come to this acknowledging our God is a mystery, yet he's knowable. And so he does things for us because he says, my ways are above your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. As far as the heaven is above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. So he gives us glimpses of himself. He grants these things to us. And what we see here in Acts chapter 2 is very consistent with God's appearance in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example of that from 1 Kings 19. And, And here's the background on this. Elijah is a great prophet of God. He's been on Mount Carmel. He went into battle for God, but he feels he failed God, and so he runs for the wilderness. Literally, he hides under a tree out in the desert area, and an angel meets him and says to him, Elijah, you need to be refreshed and go a little further, and and then you'll be really refreshed. So he picks up everything, and he heads off for Mount Sinai. He finds a cave, goes inside a cave, And when he arrives there, God shows up. That's the background to what you're about to see here. 1 Kings 19.11, Behold, the Lord was passing by, 
And a great and strong or violent wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. I've seen strong winds before, but I've never seen a wind strong enough to break apart a mountain. How strong does that have to be? That's just kind of aside the point here. But it says it was breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. But God was not in the wind, but God was not in the earthquake, but God was not in the fire, not in it, yet he uses these elements as an image of his presence. That's what they're experiencing in the upper room. He does this to assure his people, I'm here. They're being assured of his presence. So this sign of his presence burst on the scene in Acts chapter 2. Now, wind is frequently a picture of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew language, the word for wind is ruah, but it's also the same word for spirit. In the New Testament, the word for wind is pneuma, but it's also the same word for spirit. Why is that significant? Because the ancients believed that when the Spirit of God or the wind of God arrived, that they should be looking for the ushering in of what they called the messianic age, the final age. So here's a symbolism going on. For all of these followers of Christ who have gathered, they're all present. The presence of God is among them in a way more personal and more powerful than they could have ever possibly known before this moment in time. Go into verse 3 with me, and it says, And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. My take on this is it's not literal fire, not flames of literal fire, but they don't know quite how to describe it. So he says, as of. It's kind of like the word like. I'm not quite sure how to describe it, so it's as of like fire, That's consistent with the Old Testament, the fire of God's presence, God at the burning bush, God in the pillar of fire that guided Israel through the wilderness, the fire of God's glory over the tabernacle, the fire of God on Mount Sinai, John the Baptist writing that when Messiah comes, he will baptize both in the Spirit and in fire. This is all part of the imagery of God. Now, we would say, if if we're even vaguely familiar with the Bible, that we can see throughout the Old Testament the activity of the Holy Spirit. You can see Him in creation. You can see Him throughout the history of the Old Testament. You can see Him in the life of Jesus. But what you're seeing here now are two major changes of the Holy Spirit. And I put them in your notes this morning so you can perhaps transfer them over to your Bible so you don't forget it. But these two major changes are this. When the Holy Spirit comes, He comes to dwell in people, not just on them. Up till this point, the Holy Spirit has come and then left. But now the Holy Spirit comes to stay, and His presence is permanent, not temporary. This matches what Jesus said. Let me lean back into John 14 for you. It says this in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you. How long, church? forever. It's always with us. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. That's pretty personal. 
Pretty personal, wouldn't you say, to have that kind of intimacy? The Spirit is in us. That happens when? At the moment of salvation. So Luke is stressing something really significant here. This column of fire, this representation of God, comes and splits and rests on each one of the 120 who are gathered in this upper room, meaning this to us. The relationship with the Spirit is intimate and personal. It's not just a column of fire anymore, the presence of God. It's split out as tongues of fire, and Scripture says, resting on each one. But we know God is not fire. God is not wind. But He uses these elements as He pleases to assure His people, I'm here. I'm among you for a reason. So that sets us up for this stupendous miracle. And I don't know how to frame it in modern terms other than to use some language that might help us frame it a little bit more clearly. We see here some individuals who are about to speak in foreign languages for which they have not studied or prepared for. How much time is needed in our world to speak and learn and interact fluently in a foreign language? Years. I think immediately of Rick and Sharon Bruce in Thailand who took two years to study foreign language of the Thai people. And then only to get to the end of that and discover they needed to study the language of the Pu Thai people to get into the dialect, to be able to speak it the way that they speak it. So let's frame it this way. It's, it's one thing to go into Mexico and to need a restroom and say, donde al baño? Because we can all remember three words, right? I need a restroom, so I can remember three words, don't I, Albano? But it's another thing entirely to go into Mexico and say, me llamo es Marcos, yo estudio español tres años en la universidad. Now, those of you who are here that speak Spanish know that I just butchered that, right? But I lean back into 20 years ago when I studied that for three years when my teachers tried to pour into me, and that's all I got, one sentence. These individuals are about to speak fluently in a foreign tongue. Go with me to verse 4. It says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Tongues is understood here as languages, meaning recognizable, understandable language. Here's the miracle. Without any previous study whatsoever, they speak with perfect fluency. Whatever language is needed, one step further, they're communicating spot-on theological truth to individuals who have gathered from the nations around the world who don't speak in the language of these Galileans. Do you think that if 24 hours earlier someone had come to one of these fishermen and said to them, hey, let's converse in the language of the ancient Parthians, or, or the language of the Asians, or, or the language of Persia, that they could have done it? Absolutely not. This is the miracle here. Illiterate fishermen addressing foreign nations of the world. So we come into verse 4 when we see this phrase filled with the Spirit, and we have to ask ourselves, how? How does this work? How do they do this? And understand that being filled with the Spirit is distinctly different from being baptized with the Spirit. You see those two phrases in Scripture. 
filled with the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit. What's the distinction? What does that look like? In the Greek language, understand that the word baptism as we use it today is, is the word baptizdo, and it actually has two components to it. It has a literal meaning, meaning baptizdo, plunging someone or submersing them or an item underwater, and then the figurative side of it, which means to be identified with. So in the baptism service that the church does, when someone steps into our baptism tank, we are literally plunging them underwater, but figuratively they're being identified with Jesus, saying, I belong. This is who I am, and I'm saying it in a public way. Well, in the same way, the baptism by the Spirit is the experience of being identified with Christ. It happens at the moment of salvation. When God does something that can't be done in any other way, He brings us into the family of God, literally believers being identified with Jesus Christ. Paul is very, very careful about this language when he defines the identification, and he uses it in this way in 1 Corinthians. This is the action by which Christ places us into the body of believers. It says, for by one Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, identified with and immersed with God, identified because this is something that God can do. It's a single, unrepeatable action on God's part. It's not an experience that you seek out. You might be surprised to know that you are not exhorted any place in Scripture to seek the baptism of the Spirit. Why? Because if you're a believer, you don't need to seek something that you already have. You already possess it. So nowhere in Scripture are you commanded to seek the baptism of the Spirit. That's something that God does. But where the baptism of the Spirit is a one-time event, the filling of the Spirit is an ongoing experience you might be saying, how does that happen? That comes in moments of surrender. Let me bear down on that just a little bit so you understand that. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because we need God's power acting through us to serve Him effectively. Paul says it very simply in Ephesians 5.16, be filled with the Spirit. So you would find me, if you came into the back of this auditorium, go through that door 15 minutes before the service, on my face pleading with God that His power would work through me. Because I don't want to do this in man's strength, right? This has got to be through the power of God. So even though the Holy Spirit is within me, I'm asking God to release His power within me. I have found that being filled with the Spirit is really a lordship issue. Who is Lord of your life? Is Jesus Lord of your life or are you? Like I said in the beginning, many of us are good with knowing that our eternity is secure, that Jesus is our Savior and we're going to live with Him for eternity because of what He did on the cross. But many people stop short and don't make Him both Lord and Savior. They're good with the Savior part, but Lord and Savior means He's got control of our life. So you won't find these next three things in your notes, but I'm going to put them on the screen. Maybe you want to translate them down. Being filled with the Spirit involves confession of sin. You confessing to the Father where you're falling short, where you're struggling, where you're weak. Being filled with the Spirit involves dying to yourself, meaning putting aside your selfish desires for the things that you want in favor of what God is calling you to do. Being filled with the Spirit is to have your mind saturated with the Word of God. 
Uh, right away, if you're new to church, you might be thinking, well, how can my mind be saturated with the Word of God? I'm new to this thing. Saturated with the Word of God literally is spending time in God's Word. Some people might be further along than others, but it, it means taking time to focus on God things. So let me make it real simple for you. As you and I yield our day-by-day decisions, whatever things you have to decide on this week, whatever things you might have to decide on today, as you yield those things to God, to His control, you're actually doing what the Scripture calls walking in the Spirit. The Spirit is taking control because you're looking for God's purposes. So this is the way it's said in Galatians. Galatians 5.16, I say, walk by or in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. So just so we're real clear before we move back into the story, these are two distinct experiences we're talking about here. The baptism of the Spirit means, I belong to Jesus. The filling of the Spirit means, my life is surrendered to Him, and He can use me according to His purposes, how He wants to. So the baptism of the Spirit grants you power because of salvation, but the filling of the Spirit unleashes that power. So here's where we come back to this story. These individuals are seeing these tongues of fire. They're hearing this rushing wind, and they have the overwhelming sense of God's presence among them. And until this moment, you and I can identify with them. We can easily envision them on their knees praying for the arrival of God's kingdom. We can easily envision them passionately seeking God on their face. But what they're about to encounter is something of God in a fresh, new way. They move from seeking the presence of God to actually experiencing God's presence. And this fire wells up within them and it begins to burn and they cannot shut it up. They're like Jeremiah, the ancient prophet, who said, I wish that I could shut up, but my bones within me just burn and I have to speak of the mighty things of God. That's what's going on with these individuals. And if I can extrapolate from verse 11, literally it's overflowing. Verse 11 says they're speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Well, that makes sense. I mean, if you're going to be filled with the Spirit, you're going to be speaking of the mighty deeds of God. How could you not do it? Verse 5 says this, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound, meaning the wind, occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? This is a really emotional scene here. So you can easily picture this. People rushing to the source of this noise. Human nature is so curious by nature that we run to explosions. It seems like safety would tell us, run away. But they're running to trying to figure out what's going on here. When they arrive, they hear these Galileans, and I'll explain that in just a moment, speaking in their own native language. We're told according to this verse here, verse 5, that they're devout men from every nation under heaven. Well, we've already discovered that Pentecost meant that for one of the three events, you, you show up in Jerusalem. People are gathering. They're celebrating. They're getting ready to praise God. So these individuals who have shown up have gone to the trouble to make the trip. These aren't individuals who skip church on Easter Sunday to go play golf. These are people who are interested in the things of God. Things of God matter to them. 
So they're God thinkers. So we find them confused because they're hearing these individuals speak in their own language, meaning a known tongue. And they're amazed and ask the question, aren't these Galileans? Why is this so shocking to them? Well, because they're city folk. They're from Rome. They're from Egypt. They're cosmopolitan. And they're hearing these backwoods boys talk in a language they can understand, and this is shocking to them. They're farmers and fishermen. And the words they're speaking are immediately recognized by those who are hearing the language. Here's the problem Galileans had. They dropped the syllables. They couldn't pronounce words. They struggled with the guttural sound. So in, in our world here in Michigan, we use a phrase like, you all. If you're south of the Mason-Dixon line, you might say, y'all, right? But in the Galilean tongue, they would say, y'all, because they couldn't quite get that guttural sound out. And it was hard to understand unless you're from Galilee. But they immediately recognized their own language. Well, it's, it's one thing to get down the language. It's another thing entirely to get down the intonation and capture the phrases. There's a distinction between people in Michigan and people in Alaska. Did you know that? I discovered that a couple years ago. I was standing in line at a grocery store in Alaska, and the gal who's running the checkout register said to me, um, is there anything else that you need? Can I help you with anything? And, and I said, no, I'm good. She said, you're from Michigan. <laughs> I said, how did you know that? Yeah, I am. She said, only Michigan people say, yeah, I'm good. I didn't know that, but she knew that. She recognized that as an intonation thing. She said, just the way you said it in your dialect, I knew where you're from. Well, that's what's going on here. These individuals are recognizing, wait, these are Galileans who are speaking fluently in our language. How is this possible? If God wants their attention, the sign has the effect. He has their attention. This crowd has become captivated, and they're focused on them like a laser. Move forward into this next verse. This is a significant list. Verse 8, And how is it that we each hear them in our own language, to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Language and tongues in the Greek language is the same words. It's dialectos. They've got the dialect down. So why give us this list? This is a very significant list. Let me, let me help you with these regions. Parthians, that's Iran. This, this Medes, that's part of the Persian Empire. The next one, the Elamites, that's southern Iran and southern Iraq, what we call today the Fertile Crescent. The, these regions are recognizable to us when we put modern-day terms with it. Mesopotamia, what is that? Mesopotamia literally means those who dwell between the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. These are the citizens of Baghdad who are in Jerusalem. Well, Judea, we recognize, and it's used in a very broad sense here. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, when the word Judea is used, it's speaking of Solomon's former empire. Well, Solomon encompassed all of Turkey and all of Syria. That explains why you don't see it listed here. Yet we know those people were there. Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, those are recognizable to us. That's Asia Minor. Well, we recognize Egypt, 
and the district of Libya. But what is Cyrene? That's Morocco. That's North Africa. So people literally from all over the known world, even Rome and the Cretans. Cretan is a subject island of Greece. People of Greece were there. That's why when you, when you open up the book of Titus and you see a church already established before Paul arrived on the island, there were believers on the island of Crete, Cretans, who were back in Acts chapter 2, who heard Peter speak. And then the last one on the list is the Arabs, these people around the region of Damascus specifically. Each of these mentioned had a considerable Jewish population from around the known world who have gathered into Jerusalem and are now about to hear the mighty deeds of God. So what you should notice here is these believers, these first 120, are not preaching. They're not doing that. They're speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They're putting themselves on common ground with all these people who have come to Jerusalem to worship God. An essential element of the ancient worshipers was always to begin talking about how great is their God. We do that in church today. Before we explore God, we begin talking about how great is God. Moses did this all the way back in Exodus 15. It says this, Exodus 15, 11, Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, working wonders? If you go back to Exodus 15, you see that's just the launch. That's just to put people on level ground. So by speaking of the mighty deeds of God first tells me something. They know this crowd. They know how these individuals are thinking. So they don't don't jump right into talking about Jesus. Rather, they begin talking about the mighty deeds of the one true God so that they can set them up to hear about the ultimate deed of the one true God, the arrival of Jesus Christ who's come to rescue and redeem them. So we land this plane by recognizing this. God is using the sounds of the wind to gather the crowd. God is using the languages to captivate the crowd. God is using His past mighty deeds that He has accomplished in order to confirm to the crowd, these guys are not freaks. These 120 who follow Jesus, they belong to me. And I'm moving powerfully through them. And it convinces them that the believers in Jesus are devoted to the one true God. This is building a climax for the Holy Spirit to unleash upon them. And he's preparing a way for Peter to step up in no uncertain terms and declare the news of salvation in Jesus. So when the Spirit comes, the Spirit comes in power. And the Spirit comes suddenly. And He comes on His own terms for one specific reason, to declare the greatness of God in order to draw people into relationship with Him. So verse 12 ends it for us. Verse 12 and 13 says this, And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. There will always be mockers in your world, church. There will always be those who scoff and reject the evidence. They're right there in the first century. Even though God is at work and powerfully, they jump to a naturalistic explanation. They're drunk. Nine in the morning and they're hammered. Look at these jokers. There will always be scoffers. But more importantly, there will be those who will genuinely ask, 
What is this? What's going on? These individuals genuinely inquire, what does this mean? They're going to soon understand that we serve a great God. Who is like our God, New Hope? No one. Who could do these things? Able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or imagine. Our God is a great God. Amen? Look at how He unfolds Himself before them. So just to send you out the door this way, Pentecost power, as it's been known in our world today, is not what it has become associated with in our world. Pentecost power is a demonstration of the passion of your God to transfer people who are living in darkness, who are in the kingdom of darkness, to transfer them into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That is the passion of Pentecost power. That's why He comes. The reason for Pentecost is to let people know of the Gospel. So what you've seen here is the followers of Jesus Christ have just thrown a fastball down the middle of the plate to set Peter up to knock a home run out of the park. But that's next week. We'll come back to it. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that all the things that we've just studied and participated in together are things that you wanted us to know. And so we don't want this to slip quickly past us, but rather we would ask that you would take these and seal them in our heart. We may not lean back into them this afternoon, but maybe tomorrow or maybe a week from now. I ask that you would do what only you can do and that you strengthen us in our walk with you as a result of learning these things. And and that your people who make up this church would chase after this desire of being filled with the Holy Spirit. God, I ask that you would empower us in a way that we've not known before. That you would make us so bold that we too would proclaim the mighty deeds of God before people who are asking, what is this about? Let us be bold, Father, in our, in our way that you want to use us. You've equipped each one of us. Put us in that place of surrender to you so that you can use us more fully. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name that you would send us out with your blessing for having spent time in studying your word. Amen.